0: This evening congregation we invite your attention to be turned to the book of Micah to chapter 1. We'll be reading from verse 1 through verse 9, uh, using the portion that begins with verse 2 to verse 9 as our text for this evening's consideration. So we turn to the inspired word of God, the section of Micah 1 verses 1 through 9 in the Pew Bibles. You can find that on page 1070. Hear now together the reading of the Word of God. The Word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which He saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, all you peoples. Listen, O earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, and all her pay as a harlot shall be burned with the fire. All her idols I will lay desolate. For she gathered it from the pay of a harlot, and they shall return to the pay of a harlot. Therefore I will wail and howl. I will go striped and naked. And I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah. It has come to the gate of My people, to Jerusalem. Thus far this evening, the reading of the Word of God. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we pause and if we are honest with ourselves for a moment, I think we would all confess that it is rather easy to condemn sin in the world. The sins that are out there, so to speak. Uh, Perhaps the sins of the unbelieving world as blatantly displayed uh, by our society and the media. Uh, Perhaps the sins of uh, those uh, who would boast in their atheism. Perhaps the sins of the absolute depravity that we sometimes read reports about. And while certainly the Word of God sheds light and exposes the sins that are out in the world among the unbelieving and the impenitent members of human society, the Word of God does more than just that. The Word of God also sheds light within the church. And as it sheds its light within the church that is the covenant community of God, there also in the church, the Word of God exposes the dreadful reality of sin. I must admit that the text before us this evening is the most difficult one. And it's not that I enjoy preaching on the judgment of God that is to come, especially when it concerns the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we seek to be faithful to the text that is before us. And the text that is before us is the Word of God. Given, yes, of course, to Micah in his day, but also given to us in our day. And the Word of God comes to Micah. And it echoes what would later be spoken by Peter in 1 Peter 4 verse 17. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 verse 17 as follows, For the time has come for judgment... I'll just pause there for a moment. That message already is unpopular in our day. The time has come for judgment. Many would stand up and say, well, now don't say anything about judgment. Others perhaps would object and say there is no such thing as judgment. They would laugh and they would scoff as the laughers and scoffers always do. But Peter continues. And what he says, what he writes underneath the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that follows even heightens the tension of the statement. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Now maybe we have read that text over numerous times in our lives. Maybe we've even memorized it by way of repetition. But there is something that is absolutely striking. The time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Many of you know that Peter continues and he says, and if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the Gospel of God? What we have in Micah 1, verses 2-9 through is a prophetic oracle, a foretelling. A foretelling of an event before the event even takes place. But a foretelling with absolute certainty that the event which is foretold will take place. And basically what Micah says, is the same as what Peter says. The time has come for judgment. And that judgment will begin at the house of the Lord. Now Micah's writing in a day, and we remind you of these things which we set forth in our introductory sermon in which Israel, uh, the covenantal people of God, those people who have been blessed beyond measure, those people to whom primarily have been committed the oracles of God, they were enjoying economic prosperity. They were enjoying uh, social affluence. Life, you might say, was good from an outward perspective. And yet, they were on the very eve of the exile. Because life was not good in the internal spiritual perspective. And so, we'll consider this text before us this evening with this theme, The Lord Calls His People to Court. And we'll notice as we follow the text that the Lord calls His people to court, first of all, with a holy summons. Secondly, with a legal reason. And third, with a terrible prediction. So the Lord calls His people to court. Even in the theme, there should be something that strikes us as ironic. The Lord calls His people to court? Young people, you know you don't go to court with your friends, at least hopefully not. The courtroom setting... And lawsuits is not a place where you just kind of go to exchange pleasantries or to enjoy a good conversation with those who you are one mind with. A court is a place in which the legal claims of the law are brought to bear upon a person in a person's circumstances. And now the Lord is calling His people to court with a holy summons. Uh, when a person is served with papers and a legal sense of the Word, it is not just some invitation which you can disregard. You know, sometimes you get those invitations. Uh, I, I think since we've recently moved that our name and address has somehow gotten into a, a, a mailing system. So we're getting all kinds of phone calls and things in the mail saying, well, first of all, our insurance is long expired on all of our vehicles and we need to immediately renew uh, and secondly, perhaps, you know, the, uh, the insurance on the house is not up to date and all of these warnings, important notices. And you do likely what I do with them. You look at them and you kind of chuckle and you discard them. You say, oh, that's nothing important. Oh, sure, it says important on it. Maybe it even says final notice. But I can disregard that without any negative implications. But if a law officer knocked on my front door, and said, I am here to serve you legal papers. You cannot just take those legal papers and with a chuckle, put them in the recycle bin or feed them into the shredder. The Lord calls His people to court with a holy summons. And the holy summons are from a sovereign God. If you look at the text, you notice... In verse 2, let the Lord God be a witness against you. Now, we'll look in just a moment at the the name Lord, but notice that there's also this name God. And what does God mean? Well, it is, of course, El or Elohim. And uh, the name God indicates the reality that the person or persons, of course, we believe in a triune God, but the triune God acting together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, are sovereign. And that they rule over everything. And that they have, they have all power. And that there is absolutely nothing. And this is one of the great truths that we must appreciate once again in our day. There is absolutely nothing over which our God does not have absolute jurisdiction. Uh, again, in a, in, a, in a world setting, you know, someone may commit a crime uh, in one area of a country or of the world and then try to flee to another area uh, to escape the jurisdiction of the place in which he committed the crime. Here's the idea that is bound up in the name God. That in His sovereignty, God has absolute jurisdiction over every single inhabitant of the human race. He rules over everything. And He is the strong one. And He is the mighty one. You may think of this way. No one has and no one ever will escape from the sovereignty of God. No one can ever get outside of the sovereignty of God or beyond the sovereignty of God. Now, many, many a person has tried Perhaps by denying the very existence of God. Or by just simply running. You can think in the Bible, also, Jonah once tried, boys and girls, you remember the story, he once tried to get away from God. But the further he ran, the more he was confronted with the reality of a sovereign God who controlled even the wind and the waves of the sea. And controlled even the course of the fish within the waters of the seas. Many other persons have tried to run and to escape from the sovereignty of God, but I lovingly remind you tonight that that is impossible. And so it's far better, far wiser to deal with the reality of the sovereignty of God with humble hearts, with penitence, with faith, and try to ignore, minimize, deny the sovereignty of God. And as a congregation, our theology must begin with God. Perhaps you are familiar with the term systematic theology. Studied by, of course, ministers. Hopefully, everyone in the church. Courses in seminary move you through systematics in a certain structural order. And now there is this section which is entitled Prolegomena where you deal with matters especially related to the revelation of God, the Bible of God. But then the first section of systematic theology, and rightfully so, is what we call theology proper or, or the study of God Himself. And our concern is that the church, and this is not some new problem, but it is a continual problem. Our concern is that the church wants to begin with man. Man generically, male, female. The church wants to begin with Us and with our own felt needs and our own senses and our own perceptions. That's not the wisest way to begin. That's not the biblical way to begin. The biblical way to begin as a church and as a Christian is to begin with God and to emphasize the sovereignty of God. That's how the Bible itself begins. In the beginning, God. So from the sovereign God comes this holy summons. But notice that in relationship to His sovereignty, there is also the majesty of God. Verses 3 and 4 begin to paint a picture of the majesty of God. And when you think of majesty, think of someone who is high and lifted up with unparalleled power. So verse 3, Micah says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. And the idea is, or the picture is, This sovereign ruler is now beginning to move and to come forth from His royal throne and from out of His royal palace. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Now notice the highest exalted places of the earth, whether you want to think geographically of the mountain ranges, which can be so majestic in their appearance, are but simple stepping stones for the majestic God who has created them. Or perhaps you want to think of all of the exaltation of the inhabitants of the earth. All of the pomp and pride of humanity is but nothing underneath the feet of the one and only majestic God. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under Him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. So know that God is a sovereign and a majestic God, but also to begin to heighten the emphasis of this summons into court, this is also the covenant Lord. And so in addition to God, there's also this name Lord used repeatedly three times throughout this text. And from recent weeks, hopefully, and from recent years, and perhaps all the way... Back to your catechism classes, you have learned that Lord is that unique name Yahweh which symbolizes this covenantal relationship that the sovereign majestic God has established with a unique people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is the covenant Lord who has established a relationship, an exclusive relationship, And nearly every Sunday morning as the law is read, which we do not simply do just to fulfill the requirements of antiquity, so we can say, yes, we are traditionalist, but rather that law is read because it is the essence of that covenant relationship. And so never forget the preface to the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of bondage. And it's in that context, in that unique relationship, In many ways, similar to a marriage relationship. Uh, A relationship that was supposed to be bound up with the promises of exclusivity. And that's why the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before Me because I am the Lord your God. Because I am the One who redeemed you in addition to having created you. And that's why you'll find a faint perhaps, but a reflection of that in Marriage vows. I mean, a, a husband doesn't say to his bride, well, you are one of many. Uh, if he would do such a thing, hopefully the bride would run from the building and hopefully the father of the bride, uh, perhaps having a few choice words for the young man, would then also follow his daughter from the building. Because we understand that this relationship is to be one of exclusivity. And so the Lord with His people. But now, the covenant Lord in His majesty and in His sovereignty sends, so to speak, a legal summons to the people of Israel. You see the heightened drama. What are these summons going to say? Well, that brings us into our second point. The Lord calls His people to court with a legal reason. You might simply say it this way, the Sovereign Majestic Lord God has an issue with His people. He has an issue with Israel. He has an issue with the church. And that issue is one with a legal reason. And, and the Lord lays out the grounds for summoning the charges, you might say. And the charge is given in a grammatical description within verse 5. All this, now the all this refers to what takes place uh, in verse 2, yes, but especially verse 3 and 4. The majestic, sovereign, covenantal Lord is coming down to earth. Why? Because of all of this. The transgression of Jacob. Now Jacob there can just be taken as a synonym for the covenant people, the covenant people of Israel, the sons of Abraham, the sons of Isaac, the sons of Jacob. Uh, You could also just put in there the idea of the church. The people who have been exclusively called and gathered to the Lord as they're gone. The sovereign, majestic Lord God is calling His people to court because of the transgression. Now look at that word carefully just for a moment in verse 5. All this is for the transgression of Jacob. Now we said this morning that the Bible has uh, a number of different words for violations of the commandments of God. The most basic word is sin. And sin just simply means to miss the mark of a target. Uh, so perhaps as the fall and winter months come in, if there are any hunters among us, they begin to uh, sharpen their, their shooting skills. Uh, and you know, whether it's with a bow and arrow or whether it's with a, a gun, you shoot at the target and you certainly hope to hit the target. But sometimes, maybe not for some of you, but for certainly me, sometimes the, the shot is off and you miss the target. Sometimes you miss it so badly. Uh, To switch the analogies uh, just for a moment, we installed a a basketball hoop. I thought, you know, when I need a break, I'll go out there and I'll shoot some free throws. Some of them miss very, very badly. I think something must be wrong with the the rim or the basketball hoop or the the basketball something. Some of them don't even hit the backboard or the rim. And then they they bounce and they they go down the, the yard. That's the idea of sin. To miss very badly the commandments of God. But now here the word used is transgression. And this adds something. A transgression is to miss the mark of God's law in an act of rebellion. In an act of rebellion. So it's one thing, if I dribble the basketball and shoot a free throw, And I just honestly miss. It's another thing if we're playing pig with some other basketball individuals in our home, and I just get so mad that I take that basketball and I chuck it. That's a transgression. It's to rebelliously and defiantly miss the requirement of God's law. And it has this added idea of breaking a relationship. So why does the Lord summons His people to court? Because they are rebelling in open defiance. And they are breaking the exclusive relationship that He has established with them. Well, how did they do this? What were they doing that was so defiantly rebellious? Uh, Now, here I would encourage you to to take your Bible. Uh, We're going to be looking at a couple of different passages. uh, Or just listen very, very carefully. Because you have there in verse 5, all this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And then there's this question, what is the transgression of Jacob? The Lord is going to be clear. And He's going to say this is exactly what the transgression... It is Samaria. Now, what about Samaria? Samaria. The fact that it's a a geographical location on this earth? No, it's not that. But rather, something happened that was very significant in Samaria. And the text goes on, and what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Now, high places are not just places of geography, again, with some type of exalted elevation. If you first of all will turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings 14, we'll begin to understand something of what Samaria And the high places symbolize. 1 Kings 14, verse 22 through 24. We read as follows Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed, more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places. There you have that phrase, high places sacred pillars, and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. And there were also perverted persons in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So the high places are places in which idolatry was rampant. What is idolatry? Worshiping, serving, Paying religious activities to anything apart from the one, true, sovereign, majestic, covenantal Lord. And you'll see this flow out throughout the giving of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage. Therefore, don't have any other gods before me. This is an exclusive relationship, the Lord says to the children of Israel. And don't have any other gods before me. And don't make any images. That's what the pagan nations do. And there were all types of grotesque and perverse activities that went along with the pagan worship of their idol gods. And the sad thing was that Israel had settled into the promised land and had begun to look around and said, oh, look how the Canaanites worship. Maybe we should do it that way too. But yes, let's build a high place here under this green tree and let's build, you know, a, a pillar here. In Samaria. And and let's establish other places of worship. If you fast forward to 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, you'll you'll find an extended commentary on the evil that Israel did in those days. Uh, You can read the entire narrative at your own leisure. But tonight, just look at 2 Kings 17, verse 33. And here again, we have this example of the establishment of high places. But notice that it's a mixture, or at least it is an attempted mixture by the covenant people of God. Verse 33, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. They feared the Lord, at least to some extent, and yet yet they served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord. Now, there might be an apparent contradiction there, but what the author is indicating is that they did not the people of Israel on that day, they did not have a deep spiritual fear of the Lord because they were guilty of idolatry. So why does the sovereign, majestic, covenantal Lord summons his people to court? because they were worshiping Him according to the practices, the rituals, the customs, the habits of the ungodly world. Just notice, as we reflect upon this legal reason, notice how seriously God takes worship. He is ready to come down from His holy throne and to engage in legal proceedings against His bride, His covenant people, the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, over a matter of worship. The Lord takes the worship of His name very seriously. The first observation. The second observation. Notice the dangerous temptation to take cues for how we ought to worship from the world. The people of Israel, they feared the Lord at least to some extent. But they tried to exercise their religious activities according to the pattern of the world. Now, we don't have to go into extensive detail on this, but broadly speaking, the church especially in the western part of the world, I'm convinced is more concerned with what they can learn from the world about how to worship than what they can learn from the Word of God. And you will find church after church after church with worship committee after worship committee after worship committee with novel idea, with new gimmick, with new tactic taken from the rituals of the world. I hope, I trust, I pray that we well understand what's known as the regulative principle of the Word of God. Why do we do what we do when we worship God corporately? Hopefully, the answer is we do what we do because that is how God has revealed how He desires to be worshipped. We do not have autonomy when it comes to worship. What do I mean by that? We cannot come and say, well, I think it would be a good idea to do this. Well, oh, I think it would be a good idea to do that. That's what the Israelites did. Underneath the leadership even of their kings. And so you can find that the golden calves were built at Dan and Bethel. And the leaders of Israel said to the people of Israel, you don't have to go down to Jerusalem. Look, you can worship right here. You can do it in this up-to-date sort of a way. All your neighbors are worshiping this way. And this mindset has sadly begun to creep into the church so that people who at least externally acknowledge, oh yes, we fear the Lord. We're Christians. We serve God. Oh, when it comes to worship, well, I like to do this. Well, I like to do that. Maybe even in relation to Sunday evening. Well, you know, I certainly am a Christian, I certainly fear the Lord, but when it comes to Sunday evening, you know that's my time. Fear the Lord, but served God after the rituals of the pagans. Just as an observation, Why are so many churches empty? or even closed? Not because the people who once filled the pews all of a sudden in a moment said, we're no longer Christians. We renounce the Christian faith. We don't believe what the Bible says. But rather, they began gradually to worship according to their own imagination. And they made up their own rituals. And throughout it, they lost something of an understanding of the importance of worship. I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before Me. You shall not make any images. But you shall worship Me exclusively. Why did the Son come into the world? Because the Father is seeking worshipers. Worshipers who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. And now, this points out our need to examine our own hearts. Because again, this is not some legal summons sent to the Canaanites. And we dare not just simply leave our assembly tonight congratulating ourselves in some type of pharisaical, Oh God, I thank You that I am not like other men. For I worship You twice on the Lord's Day. But rather, we all must examine our own hearts and see there the tendency that we each have to worship according to our own imagination than to express genuine repentance and find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because the call to court comes also in our third point with a terrible prediction. The terrible prediction is pictured by God acting in judgment against those who rebel against Him. Now remember the word that is used if you go back to the words of our text, transgression, is an act of defiant rebellion against God. Verse 6, therefore, because because of the transgression of Jacob, because of the rebellious building of these high places and these fabrications of pillars and idols, therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the fields. Places for planting a vineyard. Now, that's not a good thing. I mean, vineyards are good things, and vineyards was a sign of prosperity. But when the Lord says, your high places, I'm going to tear them down. And I'm going to make it so that it's a heap of ruins with stones on the valley, and I will uncover her foundations. Uh, Recently, uh, I had the opportunity to to ride along for part of the harvest uh, locally, uh, and as I was waiting for my my ride, the combine and the combine operator, to pick me up, I I noticed that uh, a large hole had been dug in a field. And and in that hole, it looked like an entire old barn had been pushed, not just by a, a person, but... I'm thinking of a bulldozer. And some of you know how to bury barns and holes in the earth. I actually took a picture of it. uh, And it was kind of an interesting observation. And then I come to this text. I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field. An entire barn. In a hole. In a field. The Lord says to His people, you rebelled against Me. I will come down and I will destroy everything that you have built. Why? Well, the Lord gives the reason why in the Ten Commandments, I am a jealous God. Now sometimes we speak about jealousy as being something negative, but in this case, it's a positive virtue. God is a jealous God. On a faint Reflective note, if a father were giving a daughter away in the previous analogy, and the young man said, you are one among many of my lovers, and if the father sat there unmoved, I think we would all look at him with a bit of suspicion. We'd be like, what in the world is wrong with her father? And we'd say, what in the world is wrong with a young man? But what in the world is wrong with her father? He's a jealous man and a husband is a jealous husband and a wife is a jealous wife properly given the exclusivity of the relationship. God is a jealous God. And He's jealous first and foremost of Himself as the object of highest affection. And so God's attribute of His sovereignty and His majesty and His exclusivity and of His holiness and of His righteousness moves Him to jealous. Anger and wrath, even against his covenantal people. And so, judgment in verse 3 is coming and will come down. And notice in verse 4, something of the severity of that judgment. This is not just, you know, a frown on the forehead, a mere glance of disapproval. Rather, this is the holy activity of a thrice holy God who has been stirred to wrath because, to speak bluntly, his people have gone a-whoring after other gods and have imagined all sorts of ways to worship the one true God of heaven and earth. Ways which He did not prescribe. Don't let anyone who hear these words be deceived. According to the words of the Apostle Paul, God is not mocked. Now, do we believe that or do we not believe that? If you and I build a high place in which to worship according to our own imagination, make no doubt about it, we are mocking God in a rebellious sort of defiant way. And because God is who He is, He is not mocked. But He will certainly come in judgment. Now notice how the prophet responds. Verse 8 and verse 9, there is this descriptive, detailed, narrative of how the prophet responds. In many ways, it's similar to what you would do in those times at a funeral. Verse 8, Micah says, I will wail and I will howl. I will cry out in an act of corporate repentance for the idolatry of My people. And see, here's where we are also reminded that we dare not take the posture of the Pharisee and just walk out and say, oh God, I thank You that we're not like other churches. I thank you that we're not like other people. We were there tonight. Just note that in the ledger. Uh, We notice also those churches that were not opened and those people who were not there. That's not what Micah says. I will wail and howl. I will strip myself of my clothes and I will go about naked, not in some type of perverse manner, but in a wailing like the jackals and in a mourning like the ostriches, for her wounds are incurable. Micah understands idolatry leads to apostasy. Now her wounds are incurable. Of course, the remnant of Israel remained and the elect of God are certain and sure, safe in the arms of the Lord Jesus Christ. But speaking more broadly of those who were underneath the administration of the covenant, many of the tribes would be lost in the exile and many a son of Abraham and a son of Jacob would be lost Now certainly there were the Daniels and his three friends in Babylon who would preserve the continued worship of the true God even in the midst of all of the opposition, defying the earthly secular leaders who said, don't bow down. Don't pray to your God. Do bow down to this idol. Uh, but those four men, as an example of the remnant, said we will not because we cannot because we are bound to an exclusive relationship with the sovereign and majestic God of heaven and earth. But think of how many sons of Israel were lost through idolatry that leads to apostasy. And this is what grieves the heart of the faithful office-bearer in the church. Think of how many sons and daughters of the covenant are lost because of vain worship and because of novel ideas about what to do when we gather together on the Lord's Day. Think of how many sermons are never heard because the doors are never opened and because the Bible is never opened. Think of how many opportunities to proclaim the riches of Christ are lost Because the community, the congregation, the persons are too busy, too distracted, too devoted to their own interest. This is why the prophet says, I will weep and I will wail. But in addition to that, think of how many sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving are muted. And the great, sovereign, majestic, God of heaven and earth is not worshipped as He ought to be. Now the question for you and for me is does this create a certain weeping and a wailing out of the recognition that the sovereign, majestic, covenantal Lord is not worshipped as He ought to be? So the Lord calls His people to court as a wake-up call for the remnant. And the Lord records His holy summons through the inspired word of Micah that we might also be warned of the dangers of idolatry and of the link between idolatry and apostasy. And that we would say, as for us and as for our children, we will serve the Lord with exclusivity of purpose and of heart. We know that the Father is seeking worshipers such as worship Him in spirit and truth. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we stand humbled by Your Word with a reverence and a fear within our hearts, a holy fear we trust and we pray that trembles at Your Word. When we hear of the frequency of idolatry and of the deadly danger of apostasy, Lord, preserve us as a congregation, as families, as persons, preserve us in the way of life everlasting and in the right and in the true and in the proper worship of our Lord and of our God. And we do ask, Lord, for days of refreshment, for days of renewal, reformation, revival, especially in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ throughout the length and the breadth of this earth so that the churches once again might be filled to capacity, For those who come out of earnest and eager desire to hear our Lord speak unto us and to offer up our praises unto Him. And so we close this Sabbath evening with that prayer, also fervently requesting the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen.